0: will be presenting uh, the Messiah. That'll be here at 7 p.m. I am told if you enjoy the Messiah and want to come and hear that, seats go quickly, so do make sure you're here early. And then on the 18th, uh, we will have uh, our chili supper here at the church, and I do hope you all make plans to be here for that. There is a sign-up list on the table outside of my office for various things, so if you would like to Bring something in addition to attending, please do so outside of my office. Then as you look at your order of worship for our service today, there will not be a minute for missions. We will do that next week, so we're going to scoot right past that this morning. Kids, I want you to come up as we have been doing during that last verse of the opening hymn, number 102. And then please remember the response to the candle lighting liturgy is in your order of worship. It's that Advent song that uh, we sang the first verse of last week. We will sing verse two this week. Now, I'm going to ask, as I do every week, that we take a deep breath together. And we take this deep breath, as I've said to you before, so that our hearts and our minds can catch up with our bodies. Because life doesn't stop just because it's Sunday morning. So take a deep breath. Allow that breath to calm your mind and quiet your heart. As you breathe out, breathe out your to-do list. Breathe out that shopping list that probably isn't done. Breathe out any homework that you might still need to do. As you breathe in, breathe in the comfort of this good place, the joy of being with people who love you just as you are, and then let us worship God together.
1: Over 100 people from the ages of 2 to 80 years old were asked the question, what are you afraid of? From the voices of different generations, hear their answers.
0: Not being enough. Falling down.
1: That we will forget we belong to one another. Climate change. My child having to learn gun violence drills at school.
0: Spiders.
1: Not having someone to take care of me. Not having someone who knows my stories.
0: My mental health slipping.
1: Ending up alone. Nightmares. Today we light the candle of peace because we so desperately need God's peace in the midst of all we fear.
2: This Christ is
0: talk about a story from the Bible in a minute, but first I want to read you a book. Is that okay? Good, because I was going to do it anyway. Uh, I'm not going to read you the whole thing, so if you decide you want to read the rest for yourself after church, you can. You just let me know, okay? This is called Say Something. The world needs your voice. Mine? Yes, yours. Go ahead. It doesn't need to be perfect as long as it's from your heart. You don't have to be loud. Powerful words can whisper. You can say something in so many ways. With words, with action, with creativity. If you see someone lonely, say something by just being there for them. See how they're sitting together? <clears throat> if you see someone being hurt, say something by being brave. What is he saying there? Hey, stop, because hey, he's not being very nice to this guy, is he? No. If you're angry, say something to help people understand. So she's saying, you made me feel invisible. That really hurt my feelings. And he's saying, I'm really sorry. You see that? If you see an injustice, say something peacefully inspire others to do the same. So you see a sign says, no more hurting people. And peace, and it has the peace symbol. And then all of these signs are peace symbols. Sometimes you'll say something and no one will be listening. But keep saying what's in your heart, and you will find someone who listens. Keep saying it, and you may be surprised to find the whole world is listening. Do you see how it went from one little bird to all of the birds? Yeah. Some people find it easier to say something than others, but everyone has something to say. So do you see how they all are saying different things down here? And there are all sorts of different kinds of kids. So when you're ready, say something. Your voice can heal, it can inspire and transform. You can change the world. Are you ready to say something? Now, I read you that book and I really like that book because the story you're gonna hear from the Old Testament in a few minutes is about a lady who chose to say something. Her name was Esther, she was a queen But she was in a really difficult situation, and it was dangerous for her to decide to speak up and help her people. She was a Jewish person, and she decided, despite the challenges, despite maybe even losing her own life, to say something. And it wasn't easy, but she chose to do it anyway. Now, I don't think you guys are going to ever be in a situation, I hope not, where your life is in danger, but... I do know that your voices are important. Your voices matter. And if you see someone being bullied, you could say something. If you see a friend who's lonely, you could say something. Even if you see your mom and dad are having a rough day, uh, or whoever your parents are, whoever your loved ones are, your grandparents, whoever it might be, even maybe your teacher at school, you could say something and help them feel better. You have that ability. Even if you are a little bit nervous, that's okay. Your voice is important. Your voice matters. Your voice is powerful. And I want you to think about that this week. Think about who you can help, who you can talk to, who you can speak up for. Okay? Now, I want everybody to turn around. Face the congregation. You are leading this prayer. Very good. You're going to be nice and loud. I'll say the first line. You say it back to me. Adult, you're welcome to join in. I see the face of God in you.
2: I see the face of God in you.
0: The love of Christ comes shining through. The
2: love of Christ comes shining through.
0: And I am blessed to be with you.
2: And I am blessed to be with you.
0: O holy child of God. Oh holy child of God. Amen. You can go back to your seats. Thank you.
2: Let's stand for our gospel.
3: You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket a bushel basket, rather they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God in heaven. The Gospel of our Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God.
0: Let's pray together. Creator God, your world is not as you intended. So much is upside down and our priorities are out of order. So we pray today for those who find themselves the target of the resulting anxiety, who are blamed and scapegoated as a way to avoid the bigger issues. We ask for your help for all who are under the thumb or the boot of the powerful, that they may have the strength and courage to stand, and that we may have the strength and courage to join them. We pray today for those in danger, who have had to look past fear to possibility, who protect others and who long for a rest from their vigilance, that they may experience peace and safety, and that we may work toward justice that leads to peace on their behalf. We pray today for those who believe they can manage alone, who do not see that the fate of all creation is tied up in our ability to reach across lines of privilege, that they may recognize the value of community, and that we may reach across too. We pray today for those who have been told they are not good enough or not needed or wanted for those who have learned to keep themselves safe by carefully following the rules, that they may be set free to fulfill their potential, and that we may support them as they step out of their comfort zone. As Esther said yes to your call, knowing the risks, yet choosing to serve. As Mary said yes to your call, knowing the risks, yet bearing your word. Give us the courage to say yes to your call knowing the risks, yet speaking the truth and living your way, so that all may see your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven, turning everything upside down. We ask these things in the name of Christ, who changed everything. Amen. Amen.
1: A reading from Esther. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city. Wailing with a loud and bitter cry, he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one might hinder the king's gate clothed with a sackcloth. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to to clothe Mordecai so that he may take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what happened and why. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree in Susha for their destruction that he might show it it to Esther, explain it to her and charge her to the king to make supplication and to entreat him for her people. Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach it gave him a message for Mordecai. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the gold scepter to someone, may that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king for 30 days When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susha, and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days. Night or day, I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered. A reminder that God can and does work through each of us.
2: Thanks be to God.
0: Let's pray together. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. And may we hear a word from you today. Amen. I hate the word bossy. I've mostly removed it from my vocabulary. It slips out from time to time. But I got called this a lot as a kid and it always bothered me, so I've tried to take it out of my vocabulary now, and and I don't mind admitting that I have an abiding appreciation for control. (laughs) That's the nice way to say that. A liking for things being done a certain way runs in the family. My aunt is watching. If she was here, she would say yes. Uh, Especially the dishwasher, that's one Eric can confirm has to be done the right way. (laughs) I don't mind admitting that, and I was also a precocious kid. Uh, Way too smart and mouthy for my own good, got me in trouble all the time. But bossy is one of those words girls get called with a frequency and a connotation that boys don't get. Smart girls, strong girls. Girls that, if they were boys, would be called imaginative or natural-born leaders. Later in life, after experiencing my call to be a pastor, I was in seminary, and I got called a bulldog by a seminary classmate. (laughs) It was not a compliment. I don't remember, we disagreed on something, I don't remember what. I wouldn't back down, because I was right. (laughs) And he called me a bulldog. Uh, And that really hurt my feelings. And I'm still not quite over it. (laughs) Then there was the time another pastor got a little handsy at a regional Baptist meeting in Pennsylvania. I'd never met him before. Um, I was not the only woman there, but I was the youngest. And he felt the need, probably in his late 60s, early 70s, He felt the need to comment on everything I said, either to correct me or to piggyback on my comment. And he was everywhere I was when I got up out of my chair. He managed to just be in all the spaces that I went to, and he kept touching me, never inappropriately, but definitely unwelcomed touching. I was the first one to leave that meeting as quickly as I could. I left feeling gross and small and wondering if I was imagining things, but I never went back. How do we make people feel small? How often do we make people feel small? How often do we require people to shrink themselves to be less than, to take up less space? How many Of us have had it made clear that who we are isn't welcome because somehow we're too much too large we don't love the right person or we're just wrong for whatever room we're in how many of us have been expected to change ourselves to fit into someone else's narrative how many of you have experienced that don't ask don't tell firsthand as much for your own safety as for someone else's comfort. And how many times have we intentionally or unintentionally asked others to shrink, to change, to take up less space, and to be just a little bit less themselves in our own lives? In today's story, Esther has been made small. She has been told what to do. Now, here's a quick summary. I I know you know this story, but let me summarize where we are because we've dropped right into chapter 4. Esther is a Jewish woman who has become the queen of Persia by marrying King Xerxes. She is an orphan raised by her cousin Mordecai, who more or less enters her into a beauty contest to be the next queen. The king is looking for a new wife, and all of these women enter Esther is one of them, undergoes a years-long uh, regimen of beauty treatments to make herself prepared for the king. The big deal here is that Esther and Mordecai are Jewish, and Mordecai's advice to Esther is, don't tell anybody. Don't tell him you're Jewish. But she's a beautiful woman. The king thinks so and makes her the queen. Meanwhile, the king also promotes a man named Haman to be his right hand man, his second in charge more or less. He places Haman in a a position of power and a position of honor that among other things requires people to kneel in his presence. Mordecai, Esther's cousin, won't do that. He refuses to kneel. He is a faithful Jew. He is not kneeling to this man. And this angers Haman. So he hatches a plot to have all the Jews in the empire killed. He goes to the king. He is sneaky. He gets the king to approve this plan. And that's pretty much where we've started today. In a year's time, this decree has gone out through the whole Persian empire that the Persians are supposed to kill their Jewish neighbors. No reason. Don't have to have cause. Just we're going to get rid of them. So, this decree has become known throughout the empire, and Mordecai, at the beginning of the story, has heard the decree, as have all the other Jews in the empire, and as a sign of his horror and his grief, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, those are symbols of grief, signs of mourning, and he goes throughout the city and ends up in front of the gate to the palace wearing his mourning clothes, right? Here's, here's one of the little details that's really important, however. We hear about him being in front of the king's gate. But that really, what that does, that little note there, is it points to how isolated Esther and the entire royal court has become because here's what the text says. Mordecai came only as far as the king's gate, for no one dressed in sackcloth was allowed to enter the king's city. This is the capital of the empire, this is Susa. Uh, Mordecai is outside publicly mourning, bringing attention to himself and the plight of the Jewish people. But he can't go any further than the palace gate because the king won't allow it. You can't go inside the king's space while you're mourning, while you're wearing mourning clothes, while you're sad. You have to stay outside. That's not allowed in this space. Elsewhere in the city, the other Jews are joining in Mordecai's grief. They are also wearing mourning clothes. The text says that they are fasting and weeping and wailing. And Mordecai's outside the gate doing the same. And so we wonder what's going on with Esther. She's Jewish. She has to be concerned, even if she is hiding her identity. Well, the answer is she's not doing anything because she doesn't know. In fact, when she hears about Mordecai outside the city gates, her servants come to her and tell her what he's doing. She sends him clean clothes to wear. It's her way of saying, knock it off. You are making a scene. Now we wonder, why would she do that? It's because she doesn't know. She does not know that this plot has become law. She is insulated and isolated in the king's court. Remember, people who are mourning can't get in, so she's certainly not going to get this horrible new information about her people. Information is tightly controlled in this royal space, and that affects how Esther responds. The other thing to keep in mind about Esther is that she has been told what to do by men her whole life. Her parents die, Mordecai takes her in. She doesn't get a choice. The king is looking for a new wife. Mordecai takes her to the palace. She undergoes that year of beauty treatments. She's chosen. Now she's the queen, but without access to information or even the ability to approach her husband without being summoned. Did, Did you notice that in the text? During the back and forth between Esther and Mordecai, after Mordecai says, Esther, you have got to go and plead our case to the king. She says this in verse 10. Everyone who works for the king here, and even the people outside the provinces, know that there is a single fate for every man or woman who approaches the king without being invited, and that's death. The one exception is if the king extends his gold scepter, then he or she may live. And it's been 30 days since I've been invited to come to the king. In other words, if she's not invited, she can't go, and if she does, she might die. Again, do you see that theme of isolation? Insulation. Perhaps it's because Esther has not had the agency to think for herself. Perhaps it's because of this lack of control over her life. Perhaps it's because she has had to make herself smaller, hide parts of herself to survive, To survive. Whatever the reason, Esther is naive. Now, I'm going to call it situational naivete because it doesn't last long, and I like Esther. I don't want to think of her as too naive. But it takes Mordecai, making the situation crystal clear, for Esther to realize that being in the king's household is not going to keep her safe. She is a Jewish woman in an empire that has suddenly moved from being somewhere between positive or innocuous to the Jews to becoming mobilized in a personal way against the Jews as a people. This is shocking. It is extraordinary in the worst way. And the really, really terrible news for Esther is that her privilege is not going to protect her. Though Mordecai's comment on the Jews being safe is interesting, and here's why. If you know anything about Esther, you know that the defining element of this book is that God is never overtly mentioned anywhere in the story. Scholars usually define Esther as a novella, not a historical book, as no one can prove the existence of a Jewish queen of Persia. That doesn't take anything away from the story. It is a wonderful, wonderful story, but It's this lack of obvious reference to God that might be the most interesting part of the entire book of Esther. Scholars will make the case that there are oblique references to the eternal. And I learned something interesting this week, that because of this passage, the word makom, it's Hebrew, makom, it's the Hebrew word for place, is another word modern Jewish folks use for God. Macomb, place, is another word modern Jewish folks use for God due to Mordecai's comment in verse 14. Here's what he says. For if you, are, you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from, for the Jews from another place. So isn't that interesting? God is talked about as place. It's another word for our Jewish brothers and sisters. <laughs> But what do we do with this? What, what is the good news here? What can Esther take from all of this? I think it's Mordecai's words, that famous quote I'm sure many of you know. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. And I want you to let that ring in your ears as we watch and we hear Esther make a transition. Now, remember, I said she was situationally naive. But she moves here from that situational naivete to a woman in charge. She finds her voice when she knows she will not be safe. She realizes the best thing she can do is align herself with her people. Profound change occurs when Esther stops worrying about her safety And when she is no longer interested in coloring in the lines. I'm going to say that again. Profound change occurs when Esther stops worrying about her safety. And when she is no longer interested in coloring in the lines. Rather, as the story progresses, we see Esther use these formerly controlling, limiting lines to her advantage. At the end of the verses we heard today, she says to Mordecai, Go and fast with the people. I'm going to fast with my women. We didn't hear the rest of the story, but she does that in preparation to then go to the king. She is identifying herself with the rest of the Jews. But what's most wonderful in these verses is we see Esther become who she was created to be by God and the impact this has on her people. I went to Facebook again this week. It's a wonderful place for sermon planning. And I went to Facebook to see if my friends would be willing to tell me about times when they have been made to feel small or wrong when they were simply being themselves. A friend of my mom's I've known my whole life commented that earlier in her married life, she applied for a credit card in case of emergencies. The bank denied her because she was a woman, and she still remembers the sound of the banker's voice who denied her. She also said she has a credit card, she uses it every day, and it's from a different bank. (laughs) A former colleague said that she wanted to play drums as a kid, but was told girls don't play drums. So she learned anyway and became the first female drummer in her high school's history. One of my dearest friends told me about a time a man at church who was old enough to be her grandfather told her to stop being a flirt. She was a teenager. She said it stuck with her because she was just being herself just being friendly and kind. And this man not only sexualized her behavior, he acted like he was doing her a favor. She said the comment still bothers her today. Two seminary friends reached out. One told me about a time another classmate told her her voice was abrasive after listening to her preach. She considered this guy a friend, so his words were particularly hurtful but I do believe she went on to win a preaching award later in seminary, and she is a fabulous preacher. The other friend told me how much he hated being called overly sensitive. Now, I don't know all of the details of his experience, but this friend grew up a couple towns away from me in East Texas. And East Texas culture being basically the same as Northeast Louisiana, I'm sure you'll understand what I mean when I say that being a thoughtful kind young man back in the early aughts wasn't the culturally acceptable model for manship. Finally, the comment that made me the saddest was from the wife of a high school friend. Her words don't need any commentary from me, so I'm just going to read them to you. I've literally been told I am too much. For as long as I can remember, I have actively tried to take up less space in a pew on a plane in a car ride, spending hours with every muscle clenched, trying to make myself smaller, to be more accommodating to others. Could you tone it down a little? Could you be a little less in everybody's face? Could you just sit quietly in the back while we get through all the important stuff? Could you not say something that's going to make everybody uncomfortable for once? We so often ask those around us to tone it down, to be quiet, to be small, not bring attention to their differences. And I will be the first to admit that as a straight, white, cisgendered woman, I know that I have a level of privilege here. I have not experienced the sort of situations that those of you who are people of color or part of the LGBTQ community or any sort of minority have experienced, and I'm sorry. But on the second Sunday of Advent, this Sunday of peace, I am mindful that we need good news. We need a way to connect this Esther story to our lives, and I think that we do that through Mordecai's words. Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Perhaps your experiences have prepared you to care for someone else. Perhaps you can use your heartaches and accomplishments for someone else's benefit. What resources do you have that can be shared? How has your life prepared you for moments of challenge, moments of need? Esther's story reminds us that our fates are tied together. Not only are we better together, we are tied together here as the body of Christ, but more broadly as a human community. And the good news this morning is that our Creator made us who we are on purpose Not to be smaller or less conspicuous, God doesn't want us to make ourselves smaller or less than, but rather on this Sunday of peace to find peace within ourselves, to make peace with who she created us to be, and to live into that creation for the sake of the world. Advent is a time of waiting and knowing that not all is right, that the world and humanity are in need in need of hope, in need of peace, love, and joy? What if, in addition to the Christ child, you are also what's needed? What if your abilities, your gifts, your talents, your experiences, your heartbreaks and fears, joys, everything about you is exactly what God needs to do the work of God in the world? Perhaps, Just perhaps you were created for just such a time as this. As we come to this time of communion, we present ourselves before God hungry for a taste of the eternal's kingdom. In a world where evil and empire too often come together to hoard and exploit, we crave the fruits of the Spirit. We long for kindness. We dream of peace. We hope to be disciples of generosity, sharing and redistributing the resources. God intends for the flourishing of all people. In awe and gratitude, we join together in praise of you, source of abundance. We recognize that since the beginning, God has been building a lineage of love and liberation, inviting all who wish to belong. Through the saints and the prophets, God calls us to deepen our commitments to building communities of care and justice and to practice a more radical solidarity across identities and communities so that no one struggles alone. God has shown us the way, taken on mortal flesh and dwelt among us, and in Jesus, we come to understand God enfleshed as a brown Jewish Palestinian man, a refugee, born into a frowned upon familial structure with neither security of wealth nor access to power. His life is a witness to hope that does not come from climbing ladders of power or begging for crumbs of dignity. Hope that is born in community, nurturing love, taking risks together, multiplying what we have and finding it is more than enough. That is the hope of Christ. Like Jesus, we also gather around a table with our friends, remembering that people of faith gather around tables just like this one in places near and far. This is not my table. This is not Northminster's table. It is God's table. And here, all are worthy and all are welcome. It is at this table that Creator, Christ, and Spirit dance as one, so may it always be. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. On the night that he was handed over, While at supper with his friends, Christ gave us a pledge of love that does not go away with death. On that evening he took bread, he broke it, he gave thanks for it and gave it to the disciples saying, Take and eat all of you. This is my body surrendered for you. the same way when supper was over Jesus took a cup he filled it with wine he gave thanks for it and shared it with the disciples saying take and drink all of you this is the seal of the new covenant my poured out life I will drink this cup with you again at the table of God's joy in the new day that is coming and whenever you do these things remember me